And welcome back to the Long Lost Birvana Birvana podcast. Yeah, indeed. I uh, think I think it was December. Wow, it's been a long time. Uh, our sincere apologies. I realize I should I shouldn't do that kind of stuff because people listen to podcasts at all different times and different sequences. So you wouldn't necessarily know if you just pulled this podcast. But if you're a loyal listener, you'll know it's been a long time since we last did our podcast. Uh, this, of course, is the Birvana podcast. Uh, with me is Jeff Allworth. I'm Patrick Emerson. Hi, Patrick. Hi, Jeff. Uh, uh, I share a, a lion's share of the blame for <laughs> for the delay, but it's been kind of a crazy uh, couple months for both of us. So. Yeah, it's true. You you may share the, have the lion's share, but you don't. It's certainly not all on you. Uh, but the good news is that I'm speaking through new teeth, so hopefully, yeah. I, hopefully my my mumbling will be diminished, and my uh, enunciation will be crystal clear. I have to say, I've been studying studying your new teeth since you've sat down. And they're so well designed that I can't actually tell which ones are new. So that's that's good. They're uh-huh. like really organic looking. Well, that's good because it took an extra. Uh, the whole thing took about two more months than than anticipated. But the last month was because they were tinkering with them to get them just right. <sighs> I was ready to say just throw whatever in there. I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> but I can do things like um, eat a sandwich again, and uh, yeah, that's good. Uh, the wonder of eating. <laughs> wonder of eating. <laughs> Uh, so, brand new teeth. Everyone wants to know. Yeah, uh, we're in. Glad we led with that. Yeah, <laughs> we're in Portland, <laughs> Oregon, where uh, we've had yet another unseasonable snowstorm late February. But today was sunny until recently. Yeah, um, we're on the cusp of spring. We're on the cusp of spring, which makes me think about venturing out, drinking beers, uh, and we'll be talking about the uh, the places that we'll no longer be able to bring. Um, but I suppose I should do a formal introduction before before we go on too far. Uh, it's been a while. I'm a little out of practice of this. Yeah. So yeah. as I mentioned, you're Jeff Allworth. Creaky, old man, trying you, to trying to get back in the swing of things. Yeah. Yeah, I am Jeff Allworth. You've go read, ahead. You've, read a few, you've written a few books. Uh, one of them is called The Secrets of the Master Brewers. It's, on, it's on my shelf. Excellent. I'm getting to that. Uh, the other one's The Beer Bible. I've read parts of that. You know, my, <laughs> you know my position on this. I don't care if anybody reads the books. They just need to buy them. Uh, I don't think I bought either one. So. Uh, uh, deadbeat. Uh, but I'm going to buy this one. Uh, the one that's coming out, The Widmer Way, uh, coming out from Ooligan Press later this month. Correct. Uh, well, uh, that will be oh, correct in, tomorrow. Available in what? Oh, yeah. Okay. We won't post yeah. this till tomorrow. Then, then, I'll, then I'll have to edit. There, um, there you go. <laughs> uh, the Widmer Way, um, you've also been recording the audiobook version of that, which... Oh. That's the one I'm buying. That is brutal. Yeah. You can't imagine how hard it is to not only uh, read the text without a single verbal tick. Yeah, tick or imperfection. And listeners of this blog know that we're full of verbal ticks. Yeah, annoying really ones. <laughs> but the worst part is they, you know, you have to bring a certain theatricality to it. You can't just. I, I could do it perfectly if I just read it like a, you know, like a total dead. Uh, yeah. So I want to hear. I want to hear your Rob and Kurt voices. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And so Rob said, "Hello." <laughs> Wait a minute. He's not a Cockney. <laughs> uh, I I've listened to audiobooks, but only you know with my kids. So it's like kids' books with these characters, and so they they hire an actor to like do all yeah. these, all these voices. So yeah, there's they have they have people there who are who are theatrical, and they come in and say, "Now you want to say this with a smile, literally." Smile as you say it. It'll change the way you do it. And I want to throw them out of the studio. Yeah. Get out of here. I'm not any... I'm no, I'm no 
actor. Yeah, the thing the thing that I that I've always found when I'm reading to my kids is like some days it's easy, like I just flows and I don't hesitate and I'm reading ahead before I'm speaking and all that stuff's great. And then some days I just I'm just can't do it very well. Yeah, it's terrible. <laughs> so, when you make a mistake, you got to stop and I go okay, I go back. And it's some days it's just brutal. For, it's I'm sure it's super brutal for the people in the studio too. So. Oh yeah, I'm sure it's much worse for them. Yeah, I'm, just, I'm sure that's true. <laughs> Deal with you. Okay, you also blog at birvana.com. No, birvanablog.com. Correct. Thank you. You are Patrick Emerson, That's me. Uh, a professor of economics at Oregon State University, yep. and you tweet sometimes at Beeronomics. I do tweet sometimes at Beeronomics. Yeah. You've been a little slow in this I've been a little, time. My whole life has been a little slow. There's <laughs> been uh, a lot going on. Nobody cares, so I won't mention, but um, yeah, it's yeah. been, it's been, a, but it, you know, I, you're drinking and tweeting to come. I, I feel like that's in your future. I think I've been telling you for probably months now that I see the light at the end of the tunnel. But I think I really actually do see the light at the end of the tunnel now. So I'm looking forward to the spring and the summer. I feel that. Uh, yeah. Okay. Uh, so uh, uh, we're supposed to speak evenly and clearly, it says. Am I supposed to read that? No. Okay. That was a note. <laughs> uh, all right. So today, um, as I alluded to... Uh, in the months since we last did a podcast, a lot has happened in our hometown, Birvana, Portland, Oregon. Uh, we're going to talk about a particularly unsettling phenomenon, the closures of a raft of breweries, brewery-owned pubs, and craft beer bars. This was keyed by the closure of Oregon's oldest brewery, the beloved Bridgeport, mm-hmm. uh, which was for decades the spiritual center of Birvana. Um, something that we've learned even more, we'll talk about uh, after you posted about it. Um, lots of people are coming out of the woodwork. Uh, discussing their connection with uh, uh, Bridgeport. So we'll talk about that. Portland has always been a a harbinger of where craft beer is heading. Uh, So we're interested in what the closures say about craft brewing in general and also what they can't tell us. So we're going to discuss sort of the canary in the coal mine aspect of what Portland uh, portends to other craft beer scenes around. Right on. Yeah, so that's what we're going to do. But of course, before we do that, we have to give you, and it's been a long time, so there's probably a lot, uh, the news. Uh, in the news, uh, this is actually only yesterday. It's been, <laughs> see, that's why we waited. So, we have some, we have some news right here. Uh, so yesterday, Heineken USA announced it was planning to lay off 15% of its overall workforce. This is just the latest in a string of similar announcements. Last year, Anheuser-Busch, Miller Coors, Constellation Brands, and Pabst Brewing all announced layoffs. All this is part of the backdrop for our conversation today. Yeah, I mean, uh, legacy brewers are still feeling the pressure. Yeah, and I mean, uh, one fact here that we don't acknowledge so much because we think more about the craft beer market, which continues to grow, uh, albeit slowly, is that overall people are drinking less and less beer and less and less alcohol every year. Yeah. So that's kind of a context piece that we need to acknowledge. Yes. All right, and the second item, uh, it's a small item, but it has huge ramifications in the beer world, and it appeared last week, and that is that the national distribution giant Reyes Beverage Group announced the purchase of a Santa Maria-based distributor in California. This follows reports of another Reyes acquisition in Virginia earlier this year and is just and is one of just uh, four distributor acquisitions already announced this year. So what we're seeing on that middle tier, which is kind of something nobody pays attention to, is consolidation, which affects 
breweries heavily. Yeah. And we can talk a little bit about that later. And we've too. had that here in, in, uh, in Oregon as well. That's right. We saw general distributing get bought last year. So, yep. Yeah. Uh, next, uh, something entirely different. Um, this is trippy. <laughs> researchers, researchers at UC Berkeley released some remarkable findings. A team of synthetic biologists modified brewer's yeast to produce a range of cannabinoids. Essentially what we've done, uh, they said, is taken yeast, which would normally produce ethanol for beer or wine, and we put it in the gene for producing cannabinoids, said Jay Kiesling, the Berkeley professor of chemical and biomolecular engineering who led the research. Quote, we have the opportunity to produce very pure molecules, unquote. Yeah. <laughs> I don't understand science, but that really is really trippy. Uh, yeah, that's crazy uh so it was a gene modification yeah of the plants themselves so they actually produced the uh, so so explain uh, cannabinoids are the the cbd part of of uh the marijuana plant i don't i don't know enough about this but since it's in your family you should know everything right there are major and minor cannabinoids and the major cannabinoids are thc so i was pronouncing it wrong you are pronouncing it wrong. cannabinoids okay thank you um the major Cannabinoids are THC, which is the high-producing right. molecule, and um, uh, CBD, cannabidiol, uh, which is associated uh, less with um, a mental change and more like um, uh, potential health benefits that no one is totally clear on, like right. antispasmodic, uh, possibly... Um, Pain reduction, anti-inflammatory, all anti, these things. Anti-anxiety, yeah, uh, yeah. All these claims are flooding the market right now as it becomes right. very uh, popular. Um, there are also minor cannabinoids which are never discussed, but which could actually be really substantial in, in uh, particularly on the health side, uh, not so much on the the alter altered mental uh, state side, um, which we don't know that much about. And one of the um, people will remember there was a product the feds tried to manufacture called Marinol. Mm-hmm. Which was never when they would they so it was a uh, a synthetic marijuana uh, substitute that the feds created to try to offer as uh, to get the benefits that you get out of regular cannabis right in a try you know in a, in a controlled um, pharmaceutical context right but it never really worked uh, they couldn't get anywhere near the efficacy out of that product and it's because it didn't include all the minor cannabinoids I see. so the interaction with all these different uh, compounds has some effect that we don't understand. So the, ult- the ultimate idea here is that you could you could throw in this genetically altered brewer's yeast into your beer and then it would produce cannabinoids in your beer. Is that the idea? I guess. It's not clear <laughs> to me that if it, w- if it also produces alcohol, so you get a, a twofer, or if it if completely no longer produces alcohol. Yeah. Like the whole thing is really weird right. and mysterious. Because they say it would normally produce ethanol, but it produces cannabinoids, so uh, perhaps you need a little of two types of yeast. <laughs> That's right. Uh, okay. Interesting. Uh, All right, the last one um, we did not write down, so I'm just going to have to uh, wing this, but we were talking and, and both remembered that it was really big news that's happened now a little little while ago, but it was um, something that hit us both pretty hard. Yes. And that is, and I think many of the listeners will have heard this, but uh, that's that um, Fuller's, the last... Uh, traditional Cascale producer in London got sold to Asahi 
and I think that was in January. Um, it was it was a little while ago. Asahi was the buyer, uh, and they arranged to only buy the brewing business, so the brewery and the brewing business. They did not buy the pub trade, and a remarkable, and it was a 250 million pound deal, uh, which is over 300 million dollars. The remarkable piece of this news is that when you look at Fuller's entire income stream, only 13% actually came from the beer. 87% was in the pubs and inns, uh, which they're keeping. And Asahi will make the beer, which will be sold in all those pubs and inns. Yeah, they have a huge number of pubs in and around Greater London. Right. Uh, very nice pubs, if you ask me. Yeah, they're they're kind of upscale. But the Griffin Brewery is a treasure, and it's right on the Thames in Chiswick, and wonderful place, and a big part of British brewing history. Yeah. So it's sad to see it. And, uh, and my connection to that brewery is through the brewers. Um, we got to meet uh, Derek Prentice when he was there. He, he had retired uh, by the time this was announced, and John Keeling was the longtime head brewer there. He mm-hmm. had also retired sort of in an emeritus, emeritus position, but I was back-channeling with a couple of the other brewers who are still there because I love that brewery, and they know I love that brewery. So that's um, yeah, interesting. It's, it's uh, sad times there, I think. They're, they're, they're hopeful that things won't change too much, but, um, yeah. you know. And I was told that uh, one of the brewers there, Henry, told me that um, that brewery is optimized to do party guile brewing, and they can't really do it any other way. Uh-huh. So party yeah. guile brewing will continue at Fuller's as long as they stay in Chiswick. So, nice. Yeah, that's nice. a good thing. Yeah, which which also sort of locks in these these very traditional Cascale. Exactly. Mild, bitter, best bitters. Okay, uh, well, that's actually a really good transition into our topic of the day, which is uh, the winds of change that are hitting Beervana. Uh, um, uh, so uh, Portland has always been uh, a leader in the craft beer scene, both in the United States and, and worldwide. We have uh, a remarkable number of breweries, brew pubs, and uh, craft beer bars. Uh, and um, we've been uh, sort of riding this, uh, all boats have been <laughs> have been riding the rising tide for, for quite a long time now. Uh, the last big sort of uh, shakeout was in 1994-ish? I think it was later than that, uh, like, like yeah, like ninety six somewhere yeah. in there, and it and it lasted quite a while. It didn't really, you know, it, things were flat for maybe almost a decade. Yeah, but for the last ten to fifteen years, we've been sort of just up, 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 and up. There's been all kinds of new brewery openings, but now we've been hit with a raft of brewery closures, including, as we mentioned, some that are very near and dear to uh, our heart, like uh, Brew uh, Bridgeport. Right. Uh, so why don't you go ahead and uh, sort of give us the, the lowdown on what's going on here. Yeah, so late last year, Alameda Brewhouse closed. They'd been around for 22 years. Um, they, they're they one of those, it's a brew pub. They had all, also done some packaged product. They're yeah. one of those breweries that did not update things very much and had the same beer line. Uh, and, you know, after 22 years, that can, that can be challenging. Um, Burnside Brewing, which is only nine years old, down on Burnside Street, East Burnside, uh, abruptly closed, yeah. and uh, we don't actually have a very good description of what happened there, but it sounds like it had to do with the lease, and there might have been other factors, mitigating factors that people are not talking about. Right. Um, some brewery pubs closed. Uh, Lompoc, uh, which had already closed one of their pubs, closed another one, the one on uh, 21st, which opened um, a decade ago to replace their original pub on 21st, Northwest 21st, right. this is. And then, of course, the big news was uh, Widmer Brewing, CBA, closed the Widmer Pub. So there's no place to go in Birvana now uh, to buy a Widmer uh, 
A pint of Widmer at a, at a Widmer pub. There's no, like, you can get Widmer, but you can't go to the brewery anymore. Right. So that's, uh, that, that happened. Yep. And then um, recently, a couple of craft beer bars, the Growler Guys, which is on a, a Hawthorne, or not on a Hawthorne, but um, uh, Southeast, and Steinhouse, which is out on 82nd. They are both announced closures. Again, sounds like lease issues, rising rents. Uh, they cited the expense of rising rents. And uh, um, Sarah Vesa, which was one of the first beer bars in town, run by uh, Sarah Peterson, who we've had on the pod, and she's a wonderful um, Wisconsin transplant. Yep. <laughs> so it's kind of a Packer bar, uh, really lovely vibe there. Uh, she decided to get out of the business and sold her uh Pub to the guys who own Roscoe's, uh, which is actually pretty cool because Roscoe's is one of my favorite beer bars. In it's town, a great, so. yeah, it's a great craft beer bar. So that's uh, that's that's another maybe slightly different category. Yeah. But and all of those, a lot of change. Yeah, all of those are 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 a lot of change in a short period of time. But uh, I would say none of them created the sort of uh, the impact or the the, the cataclysm that. Uh, uh, Bridgeport did when it announced that it was uh, shutting down for good the yeah. whole thing. Yeah. So uh, tell us about Bridgeport's place in Beervana's beer culture. Well, you can definitely join me on this. I you, will. You, <laughs> uh, I was no, I was no beer expert back in the '80s when we both arrived and started drinking beer together. Um, so we we had similar, I think, kind of backgrounds and experience on that. But Bridgeport was founded. In 1984, uh, they actually, uh, they and Widmer were, were starting up at the same time. And if you ever, uh, now, now they'll both be closed, but they're literally like two blocks away from each other in, in Northwest Portland, not very far from the old Henry Weinhardt's brewery, which right. was open at the time, now closed. Um, and Bridgeport got to market more quickly than Widmer. So they actually, uh, have, uh, the claim to be the oldest brewery in, in Portland. Um, they were selling beer in 1984. And it wasn't until uh, early 1985 the Widmers got to market. Right. Um, but Bridgeport, more than than um, Widmer, I think, was a, a company, a brand that was fused to the identity of Portland. Um, back in the day, uh, one of their their first flagship was Blue Heron Brewing, uh, Blue Heron Beer, and it Blue Heron is the city bird, and everybody knows it's the city bird, so it was a really good icon. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was uh, a flagship that everybody drank in Portland. Um, they also uh, uh, had an amazing brewery, a building. Uh, that's right. Which um, is now, uh, has been sort of um, uh, uh, consumed by the expansion of a very trendy district in, in Portland that started as just an old warehouse uh, house district. So it was a very cheap sort of rundown warehouse district at the time. But it was this amazing old brick Brick building, a former rope factory. If I have my facts right, you do. Uh, and they created, uh, and this is this is where I <laughs> I jump into the story, because they created this amazing brew pub that was actually one of the very first places I went uh, after I turned uh, twenty one. Totally. Uh, you took me there. Uh, that was my first experience, and it's just an ama- It was an amazing place. It had all these little nooks and crannies, and it had lots of old, I don't know, like you know, flea market furniture everywhere and comfy stuff. And it was just this um, really sort of warm, inviting. Uh, a very social place, yeah, which, which is really incredible. Yeah, uh, people the, really, and that was why I think it's fused more to the city than than Widmer, which didn't have its own pub. Yeah, you could go to Bridgeport and you could really connect with the brewery in that way. Which in in the nineteen eighties was 
not what you did. You know, now we just, you always go to a brewery. You think that's how you do it. Yeah. And in the 1980s, most, most places you went to drink were sort of, uh, dingy bars with the windows covered up and, right. uh, and, you know, smoke filled and, uh, slightly less savory. Um, and Bridgeport was just a, uh, entirely different experience. And it was also kind of cool because you sort of needed to know where it was. You kind of had to travel deep into the <laughs> industrial district and, and find this place that was uh, pretty unique. You're really right. I didn't, when I wrote about this for the blog, I didn't actually hit that point as hard as I could have. Um, the Pearl District is what the area that it's located in now is called. And it is an upscale, it's the most upscale district in Portland, it has a lot of high rises and apartment dwelling. Um, and it's, uh, yeah, it's kind of an urban upscale enclave now. Right. Um, it was a warehouse district there that was, that it was basically uninhabited. People didn't even go in there because there were, there were warehouses in there, but there was nothing else. Right. And, and after uh, hours, there was really nothing going on at all. Yeah. And it was not even in the central part of that district. It was sort of on the back end. And even getting there, it had the old cobblestones on the street, which had never been replaced from the old city, yep. um, and huge potholes. And <laughs> I've heard reports of people um, breaking axles back there, <laughs> trying to get back there. Uh, it was pretty rocky. And um, they, they selected that location in part because of the trail, the, the uh, rail tracks went right by it. So right. They, they could get used to, you know, it was a classic brewery story. So uh, it was not set in a place where um, it would be pretty or, you know, easy to get to. Yeah, it was a good location if you were just going to package brew on site and send it off. Uh, but they had the, uh, the vision to create this pub, yeah. um, which was a really, really unique place. Uh, the other, the other part I was going to say about the, the Pearl District was uh, the name came from the fact that some gallery owners adopted the area because it had cheap exhibition space and they opened some art galleries. And during the time, uh, during that time, they used to have First Thursdays, which was this open time. You'd come in the evening and they would say, oh, serve wine and stuff. And so it brought some people in and, mm-hmm. and uh, one of those gallery owners coined the term Pearl. I don't remember his name now. I did not know that story. That's right, because it's sort of, uh, it's this uh, jewel inside these old buildings. Oh. It's the art inside the, the galleries inside these old warehouses. It was pretty good branding. It really helped when they were transforming it into this upscale enclave. It, it was brilliant. Yeah, it was a brilliant <laughs> name. Uh, and now it's become um, completely uh, transformed by uh, condos and apartments and upscale shopping and restaurants. And it's sort of the lively, the liveliest sort of shopping nightlife district uh, in town. It's like little Manhattan. Uh, also relevant, I suppose, is the fact that on the very edge of that district was the old Blitz Weinhard Brewery, right. which took up four square blocks of the city and was still operating at the time. Yeah. Um, so they were getting lots of uh, um, uh, ingredients rolling into their, <laughs> into their brewery on those same tracks. That's right. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, uh, so Bridgeport uh, was founded by the Ponzi's, who were also pioneers in Oregon and the Willamette Valley's wine. That's right. They industry. were principally winemakers, and they got this desi- this idea. Maybe we should own a, open a brewery. Yeah, and I think, and I think again, uh, don't uh, uh, don't fact check me, uh, <laughs> but I think that they are instrumental in bringing the Pinot grape uh, into the Willamette Valley, and now, of course, Oregon's known for its. Pinos. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, and the, the funny thing is, uh, you know, one of the most iconic members of the, the, the Oregon brewing community is uh, Carl Ockert, who, who was their first hire. He mm-hmm. was the, the brewmaster, and he had just finished uh, at 
uh, UC Davis, the fermentation science program, and he figured he'd come back and either work in a big industrial brewery or probably uh, work at one of these new little wineries. And so he got into <laughs> Dick Ponzi's orbit because of the winery thing. And so oh, and then, but then Dick said, I'm thinking of opening this brewery. Do you want to help? And so that's how Carl got involved in this whole thing and became this kind of um, key figure in, in brewing in Oregon over the last 35 years. Yeah. So fascinating. So they started off with Blue Heron, and then uh, they made sort of a big splash uh, when they started brewing this uh, funny beer at the time. Uh, most uh, of the beer that being brewed, let's see, the Widmers were brewing in uh, an alt, did they start with? Yeah, but by that time, it was it way was, into the Hefeweizen. Yeah, way into the Hefeweizen. Uh, Pale Ales had, had made a big splash, thanks uh, in no small part to Sierra Nevada. Amber ales were huge. Amber ales were huge. Full sales, that's the first full sale I ever had was the full sale amber. And Portland Brewing was making Tarnahan's, also an amber. <laughs> right. And so Bridgeport comes along and brews this thing that we actually still have. We have some of the last, the Bridgeport beer. This yeah. is my excuse to open a beer now. Yeah, let's uh, do it. I, I got two cans out because so, I thought we should both have one. Oh, we should, yeah. yeah. And you got some more over there, too. It might be appropriate. <laughs> uh, this is the original uh, Bridgeport IPA. Yeah, here so it tell, is. And tell us about the provenance and the splash it made. Well, it was an interesting thing. I just mentioned Carl. Carl uh, had left the brewery. Uh, another thing that happened was um, go. the brewery got sold in 1996, the same time this was uh, being developed, to Gambrinus, a San Antonio Corona importer. Not a, not a beer maker, a beer importer. At the time of, yeah. Right. Uh, and... I mean, never really a beer maker. They they bought a they bought a bunch of breweries, but um, uh, but anyway, Carl was gone, and they brought in this guy, uh, Phil Sexton, who worked uh, for Gambrinus to to make beer, and he had the idea of doing this. Um, it was later kind of perfected by Carl when Carl came back shortly after its release. Right. But um, it was actually Phil Sexton who kind of thought through this beer, and I can. Well, I don't know if you want to taste it first or not. I haven't even poured it out, but I can tell you a little bit about what he thought, what what his goals were in making this. And even just listening to him talk about it, uh, I think, illustrates what a forward-looking beer this was and what an important beer this was in, in, in like, charting the direction that IPAs would go in America and, in, and certainly in the Northwest. Yeah, so I'll just give you, as you... As you uh, as an entree into you telling us all that, I'll say that it's uh, it's a medium amber color. It's very slightly hazy, but it's very um, very different than modern IPAs. It has a very English nose. Uh, you can smell both the malt and the hops. The hops smell a lot more traditional English than uh, than modern uh, IPA hops. You're picking up something. I think you're not maybe aware that you're picking up, but you're totally picking it up. Which is the esters. Yes, they're using they use an English beer. Uh, ah, English yes. Yeast. Actually, now you mentioned that. And that's exactly what I'm picking up. Yeah, and when you identify that English, um, yeah. that's so much of that is coming from a strain which Phil wanted to coax into expressing more of these esters because he had this idea back in 1996 yeah. that if you have a lot of ester production. Uh, it goes really well with these fruity notes you get in American hops, which as an Australian, he was Australian, he found the American hops amazing. And he had this idea, we should make it especially fruity by, by you know, kicking up the esters in this English 
E strain, which if you follow beer at all now, you know that that is uh, exactly where the hazy craze right. got its inspiration. So. Yeah, and, and, the, and the hops, I assume, are, are Cascades, probably Centennial Chinooks, sort of traditional 3C. Yeah. Uh, I know it says, it mentions, but it only says five hop varieties. Um, doesn't tell us exactly which ones. I actually looked at this recently, but I don't remember. Yeah, I think, uh, I think, we'll, I think there Willamets. actually may be Willamettes in it, yeah, too. Yeah, there got to be Willamettes in it, which are uh, a, uh, uh, you got to, I'm about to say something stupid, probably, but isn't it a, an English variant? Yeah, it's a fuggle. It's oh, mostly fuggle. About to say fuggle, but I didn't yeah. want to embarrass myself if I was so wrong. Uh, by the way, the head is also very, very traditional English. It's, it's uh, not incredibly effervescent. It dies quickly, but use by the way, I should mention that I used to drink a ton of this stuff, but I probably haven't had a single one in the last ten years. Yeah, which also explains why. <laughs> I went to the brewery this week and I ordered one of these, and it it when when it's uh, when it's Fresh and and right off the tank, it's uh it's quite a bit hazier than the ones that we have. Mm. It was actually that was one of the things it was sort of noted for was its haziness, which is another thing that I think is kind of critical. Uh, Oregon beer has because of the Hefeweizen and and then beers like this, uh, we have always been fans of of haze, not like opaque cloudiness and right. the, the fine and haziness in hazies, but um, this was a, an early hazy IPA and. And it created this expectation that if you're going to have this expression of hop flavor, um, you probably should see the visual residue of all those hops that go in the beer, which is that haziness. So, so is it fair to say that this beer essentially brought the IPA to the uh, Pacific Northwest, at least? I think it. I think it created the trajectory for hops, uh, mm-hmm. the use of hops in the Pacific Northwest. Um, in San Diego, people went for extreme bitterness and right. we never went for extreme bitterness here. Yeah. Uh, we, from 1996 on always wanted to smell and, and taste our hops. Uh, so, you know, it, this uh, tasting this beer now, um, it does not taste modern. It does not taste no, like no. the future of beer. No, it, not it, at all. It's a, uh, it's got a lot more malt character than you'd find today. It's very, uh, it's got a, kind of. It's thicker and got a fair amount of caramel in the in the palate, which is characteristic of the way uh, Ken Grossman made beer and, and sort of the the first generation of American beer. So it's it's definitely like on that hinge point between yeah. old and new. But well, I think it's uh, yeah. To me, it tastes like fabulously traditional with a with a modern sort of hop flair. Yeah, uh, which is what I remember actually. I'm it's bringing back a flood of memories tasting this now. Uh, I still think it's a pretty remarkable beer actually. I remember the first time I had this beer, uh, an ex-girlfriend of mine, Maureen Claypool, was in town. So this must have been 1996. And we had planned to go uh, see a movie at Cinema 21. Mm-hmm. And we got there early, and so we went to the Gypsy across the street, kind of an old dive bar. <laughs> yeah. And they had this on tap, so I ordered it. I don't remember anything about the rest of that day, except that <laughs> when I had that beer, I was dumbstruck i thought this is the best beer i've ever had and i turned to mo and said this beer they're going to sell a ton of this beer this is going to be a hit and it was one of the very few times i got my prediction right (laughs) (laughs) but it struck me as completely novel and totally revolutionary at the time uh yeah so it's it, it really expresses much more malt than a modern ipa it's got a lot more esters than you find in a modern ipa it's got some nice sort of floral uh, hop notes, not very citrus, but more floral and uh, um, really well balanced and, and very aromatic for its day. Yeah. 
<clears throat> I think if you put this in front of somebody, didn't tell them what it was, and asked them to tell you what it was, they would not call it an IPA. They would say it's like maybe an English IPA. Yeah. Uh, something like that. But yeah. it's, uh, they wouldn't, uh, you know, and I think this probably has something to do, we'll get to the brewery's fortunes, which which were collapsing before they shut it down. But um, when you have IPA on the, on your label, people have a certain expectation. And this is probably pretty far outside of it for most drinkers now. Yeah, and this one often won a very prestigious gold medal at the Internationals Championship of Super Beer or something. Yeah, there's something in, in uh, the UK that happens every two years. And uh, I know that at the time, the when, when they entered this and they won their category and then they won the overall best beer and nobody had ever even won a, no non-British uh, brewery right. had ever even won a category and everybody was totally blown away by the fact that this American right. company had won the whole shebang um, and it was, uh, I know Carl, I, I interviewed Carl right after that and, and he, you know, this, this brewery, his inspiration was England. He right. loves, he loves the UK and and the style of beer they made, they, they do bottle conditioning. For a long time, they had uh, a lot of uh, uh, cast-conditioned beer. They right. really tried to sell cast-conditioned beer in Portland. didn't work. But that was what they were trying to shoot for. So for him to win this, it was uh, kind of like, a, I think, a, a career-defining moment to yeah. have, have such a, a prestigious win. And they went back and they did it the next time, too. Yeah. They did it two years in a row, or two, two times in a row, which yeah. is also really... Amazing and hard to do. Yeah, I mean, this is during the period where craft brewing in the U.S. is incredibly nascent and not not well known or respected. And to go to Britain and and win the whole thing with a, a British style beer is is quite amazing. But I was going to say that if you gave this to me today and didn't tell me what it was, I would probably guess that it was something along the lines of a Fuller's Bengal Tiger or a, <laughs> or a Bellhaven Twisted Thistle, right? That, which is what these English beers with a little bit of of uh, American hops. Uh, are like it's very much like that now so you yeah. can still find these in england um some of these old traditional brewers when they're trying to brew a more modern ipa but uh yeah i think actually it's still a i'll, I'll miss this <laughs> yeah yeah i know it's true we should figure out the recipe and of course that's can... me saying that who haven't has that who hasn't actually gone out and buy and bought an ipa yeah I, I i you did remember uh remind me that you and i would go to the bridgeport uh, pubs looking for cask ale because they were one of the few that would actually do it and they would put this on cask and it was quite lovely too. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and they still do. They still do. The pub is open for another week and, um, you know. That's uh, right. So if you're, if you're listening to this right away. That's right. You still have to, whoops, sorry. You still have a chance to get out there quickly. Yeah, Sally and I tried to go on Saturday and there was an hour-long wait and we had gone late and we were starving. It was like 8 o'clock and we did decide not to wait. Uh, and then I went, I think on Tuesday or something, yeah. um, and they still had quite a crowd. So uh, people, people are definitely trying to get their last, yeah, their last visit. So in the late '90s, they were sort of riding high. They had this great beer, this iconic beer. They were a, a, a fixture of Portland brewing, uh, and then things started to start going a little sideways in the knots. I would say probably right. Yeah, uh, and and one of the big uh, issues with them in the knots was their. Uh, decision or Gambrinus, I guess, is decision. I'm going to put this on the Texans. Uh, you should. I can talk about that. To but... completely gut and remodel their brew pub. Yeah, in 2006, they by that time the writing was on the wall and the pearl had started to emerge, and they wanted to appeal to the upscale 
clientele. Yeah, and it is true that the Pearl, you know, was was growing on these really sort of upscale luxury condo buildings that were being built, and it and a whole new. Uh, uh, I'll do a quick foray into Portland history, which is when we were students in the nineteen eighties, late eighties here. Uh, Portland was still very much a blue collar logging town. Uh, there was very little wealth. Uh, it was very working class. Uh, yeah. Very inexpensive place to live and 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 to do things. Uh, and it, by the two thousands, the economy had really transformed away from the old traditional resource based economy and, and much more modern and service based. And there was a Silicon Forest, so there was tech and uh, and the. Uh, uh, Nike and Adidas, uh, sort of creative people around too. So Ben White and Kennedy, who were piggybacking on that. So there was this whole creative space, which yeah. created this young class so of uh, lots of middle class, upper middle class, young classic. professionals moving in. West Coast kind of. So let's so let's at least recognize that there was this sort of demographic trend and uh, uh, socioeconomic trend that was happening, but <laughs> but. But, but, but. <laughs> so they, they, they did this remodel, and they basically took this old funky, as I mentioned, the sort of like thrift store furniture, lots of nooks and crannies, exposed brick everywhere and timber. It was just a lovely, very cozy space, uh, not at fancy at all. They gutted it, and they put in like stainless steel, marble, and black, shiny surfaces and things. I don't yeah. even know how to. And they did the most unforgivable thing. It was completely different. I mean, 180 degree. Yeah, it was 180 degrees, but it was um, it was not a distinctive transformation. It was a generic upscale. It yeah, looked like, and absolutely. then uh, I would later talk to, uh, at the 30th anniversary five years ago, I talked to Carlos Alvarez about this. So that would have been, um, I guess, uh, you know, well, less than 10 years after this. but Alvarez being the head of Gambrinus? Alvarez being the guy behind Gambrinus, yeah. Mm-hmm. And the, the man who controlled everything. He was really the, the, big, the big wheel there. And he talked on and on and on about the Chili's restaurant chain <laughs> and how that was his inspiration. Like he's like, we got to, you know, they're really successful and they do great work and you don't want to have anything too, uh, too particular because then that will alienate customers. And so... Right, you know. the lowest common denominator, which seems to be <laughs> the exact opposite of craft beer in general, right? And especially in Portland, Oregon. So you got this Texas guy yeah. trying to make a generic brewery in the heart of Portland where you can't sell beer making it. I mean, you know, fatheads tried to do that, didn't work. Like you, you just can't do generic in Portland. It's not a, it's not a move. Yeah. Um, One of the things that probably people know Portland for if they don't live here is that the sort of artisanal movement that happened, we were relatively cheap West Coast city. So lots of chefs and other creative people moved here. It could start. So this idea, it's a very bad place to try to open a chain restaurant. That's right. Very, Chili's, I don't even know if there yeah, is a Chili's. It's a very good place to try to open, you know, some funky, new, interesting, one-off restaurant that's that's about your personality and your vision and stuff. That's what we celebrate here. Yeah. So, yeah. So doing that to a craft brewery in particular is a really bad idea. Yeah. It was a it was a bad move. Uh, it was horrible. I, I was I was devastated because I had, I had moved away for quite a long time to go to grad school and my first job. Uh, uh, Bridgeport IPA, by the way, was one of those things you could often find sort of in, certainly in Denver where I lived for six years and sometimes in the East Coast where I was for a little while in grad school. Yeah, that was, that was, that was Alvarez's idea is we'll, we'll genericize it and turn it into a national brand. Yeah. And, uh, so it was, it was delightful to be able to find it, but coming back and having to go to that brew pub was one of the most 
one of the saddest moments of my life is walking in there and not remembering anything. Uh, it looked entirely different. Yeah. So, so that was that was not a good sign. And then in beer terms, they started floundering as well. I'd say they totally did. They lost their identity. It went, you know, and Carl was making the original English style ales. You know what a Bridgeport beer was? It mm-hmm. was it was a you know it was a yep. classic, a classic presentation. Very well made. Always very well made. Um, and you know, people there were there. Before IPA, Blue Heron was the flagship, but people liked some of the other beers that they made. I always really loved their porter. Um, it was a it was a coherent approach. IPA came out, and they were able to write IPA for a decade without even breaking a sweat, so right. they didn't really have to think about their identity. And I, I launched my blog in 2006, and it's interesting. The very first blog post I had was a review of a Bridgeport, <laughs> one of their new beers, ah. which was called Surprise. Uh, like surprise, but without an e at the end. Right. And it was uh, um, a Belgian pale ale, and it lasted all of six months, and it was gone from the market. And there were just many of these random ideas flailing where, around. Yeah, we'll just do a, something to stick. Some random beer, and I started going back into my archives. I googled Bridgeport and just looked at all the random beers that they had brewed that had come up that came up in my archives, and they were. There was no plan, no purpose, no intention. They were they were rarely bad beers, but they just didn't have any. Right. No, nobody understood. You know, they they didn't relate to anything, and and they weren't supported, and they didn't relate to other products they were also releasing at the same time. And so they would just they you know they'd be on the market for a year, and then they would be gone forever. And yeah. then and eventually over time, this just completely eroded the brand and and made it completely irrelevant. And and you saw in the numbers. Uh, you know, they 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 were. Uh, I think it was like eight years ago. They made twenty. They sold twenty seven thousand barrels in Oregon. Right. And this year they sold sixty five hundred. Yeah. So yeah, I mean that's just a catastrophic collapse uh, and and a failure to take care of your home business. If you don't do that, you're out, you're going to be out of business. I think you know if you can't sell business at home, yep. what what are you doing in beer? Yeah, a, f- a failure to really re- understand uh, two things. I think in in retrospect, Gambrinus. I don't think I thought. I think thought nationally, of course, yeah. uh, very ambitious, uh, and didn't understand the Portland market at all. Right. Uh, and the second is the failure to understand the evolution of craft beer in general and what it represented and, and how it was very much an expression, this sort of, well, in my opinion, this artisanal expression of the brewers themselves and, and a vision. And when you corporatize that and just try to create a brand, a brewery as a brand, and then we just sort of pop out what we think might stick, these lowest common denominator beers, then that's a recipe for disaster. Yeah, and they uh, they were very, nobody, they, they, didn't, they didn't keep a secret uh, of how they approached beer, which was the marketing part, department sat down and figured out what beer they were going to make, what the exact right. parameters were, right. and they sent that down to the brewers to execute it. And they were looking at what ephemerable trends might be happening at any given time in the in the market, and they would, you know, they would look at whatever beer was selling well, take that, take very close notes, and say replicate this beer and uh, send that over to the brewery, and which is very much sort of a macro brew model of uh, imposed on craft beer. Yeah, and, and it and it just was an abject failure. It really was an abject failure. I think that should be a big warning to people. So we've spent a lot of time on Bridgeport because this is obviously a, a, a central 
figure in the development of craft beer. I mean, without Bridgeport, it's hard to imagine how craft beer would have evolved if beervana would even exist as it is today. Um, so I don't think we're we're overstating by saying saying that. But uh, they're not the only ones, uh, and uh, and we've had, as we've mentioned, a number of closings of breweries uh, that did sort of capture part of the zeitgeist for a while and uh, were uh, acclaimed and well-known and well-beloved local breweries, and they're starting to close. And so now the question is, what's going on in Portland? Yeah. What's going on in Birvana? And is this uh, is this a glimpse into the future of a lot of other maturing craft beer markets? I think it's important on that point to uh, mention a few facts because the the Oregon and particularly Portland beer market is unlike anything else in the country. We are we are unique, yeah. uh, in the saturation of local beer in our market, and 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 of course all our, all, all local beer means all craft beer. There are no we don't have a uh, you know a bud plant here or anything. Right. So we have seventy seven breweries in Portland, uh, one hundred and seventeen in the metro area, and two hundred and eighty one in in Oregon. So we have a lot of breweries. Uh, those numbers are fairly stable. We've had yeah, a lot you, of breweries. You said for that a long kind time. of fast, but stop for a second. Two hundred and eighty-one breweries in Oregon. Yeah, uh, one hundred and seventeen in the metro area. One hundred and seventeen for one medium-sized city in the yeah. United States. We're like the thirtieth biggest. One hundred and seventeen breweries. So that's <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, welcome to Beervana. So that is an interesting thing. But here's the really big thing. Uh, and by the way, I'm, I'm pausing on this because if we're going to talk about Beervana as sort of a, uh, a glimpse into the future, and just recognize how saturated we are as, That's a, right. as a beer market. Yeah. We're talking about what saturation really looks like. I know people in Chicago think like they're really rocking it now, but here let's let let's look at this these other stats. Yeah, go ahead. A quarter of all the beer sales in Oregon uh, are Oregon made beer. This is not just craft beer, but Oregon made beer. Right. If you if you look at all of craft beer, that probably pushes it to market penetration of maybe a third of the beer in Oregon is is. Uh, Craft beer, which is right. nationally, it's around thirteen percent. Mm-hmm. So, by comparison, there you go. And the extraordinary statistic is, roughly two thirds of all the draft sales in Oregon are Oregon-made beer. So, craft beer. It's actually literally hard to find Bud Light right. in Portland, Oregon. Like, if you walk into a place and want a Bud Light, you almost certainly have to get it in a bottle because they're not going to devote a tap to it. It yeah. just does not. And sell. once again, yeah, we're we're a state without a big macrobrewery. Uh, outpost. We don't have a uh, AB, uh, AB brewery here. Um, <clears throat> we have a lot of people who drink craft beer. And one thing I didn't put on my notes, but I'll mention, the BA came out with stats about uh, the proportion of female drinkers. Mm-hmm. And Portland was 50-50. Like 50% of the craft beer drunk in Oregon is drunk, or in Portland, is drunk by women. So I think when you talk about saturation, you have to talk about Who's drinking the beer, where they're drinking the beer, and how much of the beer they're drinking. And we are, I mean, these numbers are ahead of Belgium. You know, when you look at what people are drinking in Brussels, they're mostly drinking juliper. They're not really drinking the stuff we think of as Belgian beer Right. Um, in, in, in London. I mean, ale, ale sales in, in the UK are something like 13% of all sales. They're right. like sort of like the United States. So Portland is really out there. It is a very saturated market. Where there, it's it's hard to imagine selling more than two thirds. I mean, you yeah. you know you can put that up to eighty uh, percent or something, but you're not really there's not a ton of growth there. These are these are tough markets. Yeah, so that's good. Those are good statistics, and we all have good anecdotes of sitting in you know some random bar, restaurant, and some sixty some odd old geezer stops by and asks you know 
asks about the craft beer list and then has like very penetrating questions about what kind of beer they're offering and what kind of characteristics. So it's not just the market saturation, but it's also the cultural saturation, I think. Totally. It's, it's become, and as a college professor, I said, I've said this a long time ago, but um, uh, I once took the Oregon State University Economics Club out to Newport to visit the Rogue Brewery. Uh, and I was astonished at the time about how knowledgeable those undergraduates were. You know, I was thinking about my undergraduate years, our undergraduate years, <laughs> when it was all about the cheapest uh, light lager we could find uh, to get the job done, as it were. But these, uh, but these um, uh, uh, undergrads, these people who are just turning 21, are, are what I would call sort of just like native to technology. They're native to craft beer. I mean, that's yeah. what beer means to them now, in Oregon at least. And so, you know, even undergrads are very sophisticated beer drinkers, uh, which is astonishing. And those same people are founding uh, the kind of cutting edge breweries that really define Beervana now. Uh, in my, I just released the, my top 10 breweries in Portland for 2019, and I mm -hmm. included Ruse in there, which is a new brewery, which I don't know how old the Ruse guys are, but they seem like they're in their 20s. I mean, these are, these are guys who not only are native to beer, but they're native to really good beer. Like they were tasting, you know, good upright beer when they were, you know, just getting, right. turning, turning 21. Yeah. And, and so have a f such a radically more sophisticated sense of beer than, than earlier generations, yeah. because there's so much good beer here already that if you, if you drink that beer, uh, when you're young, you just, you know, it, it's off the charts what your sophistication is compared to earlier generations. Yeah, so let's talk about earlier generations for a minute in the sense that we have a bunch of what you've coined legacy breweries here in Oregon, the, the sort of the pioneers of the craft beer scene in Oregon. And this is what's happening to those breweries now. So we have Bridgeport, which we've talked at length about. Uh, this is two-year performance in Oregon. Um, Bridgeport is down 45% in terms of, uh, <laughs> this is barrels. Yeah, yeah, volume. In terms of volume, uh, Portland Brewing, uh, another pioneer, early pioneer, is down twenty three point seven percent. Widmer, uh, and this is just the Widmer brand. Yes. So uh, there's a weird quirk that the OLCC numbers Widmer doesn't report them to OLCC. So I just actually went into the um, uh, corporate filings uh, uh -huh. to public company and looked at the Widmer brand. So this is the Widmer brand, and it's also they don't have their current. Uh, 28 performance, 2018 performance. So this is 2015 to 2017, but, but the trend is exactly the yeah, same. Down 29.8%. Yeah. And just to be clear, we've said this before, but for new listeners, Woodmer is uh, part of the Craft Beer Alliance, Craft Brewers Alliance? Brew Alliance. Craft Brew Alliance, yes. which includes Red Hook and uh, Kona. And Kona, which is actually Kona continues is to their, grow. Yeah, Kona is their, uh, their bell cow. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but Woodmer is the Portland, the old Portland uh, uh, brewery. Uh, down 29.8%, uh, Full Sail 23.4%, Deschutes 20.1%, although I've seen that they're starting to flat, they're starting to... Yeah, correct, almo correct. almost all of that was the first year. I think they only lost, you know, two or 3,000 barrels and were still by far the number one uh, best-selling brewer in Oregon. So these, some of these, you know, <laughs> the base matters. Yeah, and Rogue, which has always been a bit of an... An odd duck in all of this. Uh, yeah. Good on them. They're up 1%. 1% growth. Yeah. And actually, when you look at all these breweries, um, except I would say, uh, I think Deschutes has worked pretty hard to update their brand and, and stay relevant. 
Yep. Um, Rogue has done a ton of stuff. They've introduced spirits. They've introduced cider. They've got their estate uh, malt and hops. Yeah, they grow their own. <laughs> exactly. They grow their own grain. They grow their own hops. They have their own dairy farm. They're doing a, They're really working hard yeah. to create a local presence and be relevant. And still, after all of that, they're up 1%. Rogue is much. interesting. Rogue, but we have a whole show on Rogue at some point. Rogue, <laughs> we Rogue, is, a, we Rogue locally is so controversial, but they're a very, very interesting company. and um, They really are. And a bit near and dear to my heart. Uh, as if you go way back into the archives, you'll find out. Uh, okay, so let's try and analyze the the Portland market here. Yeah. Let's let's talk gonna, about what's go let's talk about what's going on. I'm gonna throw this so these here. are the legacy breweries. We definitely know legacy breweries in general are having a hard time nationwide. So Boston Beer, Sierra Nevada suddenly has found a new a new tailwind with a hazy little thing. Right. Good for them. Yeah. They were uh, up in twenty eighteen. Yeah. Back uh, to back to black. <laughs> Way to go, Sierra Nevada. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, but we have these uh, others. So Burnside Brewing, Alameda Brewing, we mentioned. Um, and these won't be the last. I think, I think um, yep. you know, it, this market is tough. And we're seeing, if you, if you go to my blog, you can see uh, the, top, the performance of the top 20 breweries. Yep. These are not the only breweries that are in the red. There's others that are in the red. And uh, if you go to the OLCC reports, you can see a number of breweries that are uh, you know, down uh, well into the double digits over the last year. And, yeah. and um, you know, it's tough. I mean, Burnside was down. Uh, despite the, the fact that this was blamed on the lease, they were not selling a ton of beer. They were selling a diminishing amount of beer every year. Yeah. I mean, there's some that are, that are slowing down or going negative that are sort of relatively newer and, and very respected brewers. Crux, for example, uh, not much, but just since last year has gone down a little bit. Uh, yeah. Caldera in, in Ashland is, is down quite a bit over the last year. So, um, yeah, there's, there's, some, there's some headwinds. There are some headwinds, and uh, it, it's harder. Uh, the, you know, it's interesting. I, I, in my analysis, I looked at where most of the growth was happening, and I dumped this into a spreadsheet just to see, and it was mostly in that, that category that where, where uh, breweries were in the 10,000 to 25,000 uh, barrel range per year mm-hmm. where most of the growth was going. And, and that makes sense because if you are of a certain size, you can have a greater penetration into uh, all parts of the, the uh, Northwest. Mm-hmm. Um, you can get into Fred Meyer, you know, you can get into bigger places, which really gives you a bigger footprint that allows you to build your brand and get name recognition. These yeah. little breweries, there's so many of them now, 117 breweries in the Portland metro area, plus all the Oregon breweries that are trying to sell in Portland. Right. Uh, it's hard to develop a, you know, carve out an identity when you're, when you're competing with so many breweries. So if you're bigger and you're present in a lot of places, that helps. And then as you mentioned, uh, this is a, uh, uh, an industry that is heavily efficiencies of scale are heavily important in the bottom line. So if you can get some efficiencies up, um, it's kind of the perfect. It's that perfect sweet spot where you're big enough to get the efficiencies. Yeah. Small enough to have local sales, so you're 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 getting a, a higher return on the sales you're making, and you're also, uh, uh, you know, creating a brand identity as a local brewery. And selling at home, so you're not getting beat up in Ohio and stuff like the shoots is. Yeah. Uh, so it's a really sweet spot, but um, there's not too many of those slots. You know, where if selling ten thousand barrels of beer is kind of hard work. So. Yeah, it is, and the the sort of uh, flip side to the economy of scale is that 
uh, economies of scale never are, are, are relentless, right? They don't, uh, one estimate by my colleague actually at Oregon State is that they don't, uh, um, uh, they don't go away until 250,000 barrels. Really? Yeah. Now, explain that. I, this is a new stat. You're springing on me. I love it. No, I think, I've, I think I've used it before. It's just your old mind. Oh. <laughs> Everything's <laughs> new. <laughs> uh, no, it's just a measure of what we call minimum, uh, minimum efficient scale, uh, which is at, at what point do economies of scale cease? Because after a while... I'm surprised it's not higher than that. I'm surprised it's not over a million because... I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Well, it could. I mean, this was an old analysis. This is just the number that stuck in my head. This is from from their examination of essentially macrobrewery statistics from uh-huh. the seventies and eighties, as, as I recall. It's probably actually structurally not that different. But, but think about. Accurate. But 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 I think what you're probably thinking of is that the actual brew house efficiency just goes up and up and up and up. Right. It never stops. Right. But then but then you have to counterbalance that with all the other as- aspects: the administrative problems, the coordination problems, uh, the supply chain problems, the delivery and distribution problems. So that's the balance, right? After a while, that stuff becomes really complicated and starts becoming costly to try to deal with. And when you're selling a a commodity product, uh, then you're spending a ton more on advertising and all these other things because your flavor distinction is not doing the selling <laughs> so you've got to hey, spend a lot more <laughs> you got to spend a lot more on the, the marketing and then advertising I watched the Academy Awards there was like the Budweiser black amber pale lager or something is the newest latest thing That's the Charlize Theron told me so that uh, was okay. actually a pretty good ad it was way better than that corn syrup ad which we won't go down that road yeah let's uh, not we're, <laughs> we'll get, we'll get way that was a disaster we got we sidetracked here. Uh, but this is, okay, so let's start talking about what, what a mature uh, market looks like. And one of the issues of mature market is that, uh, let's start with the most obvious, uh, shelf space tap handles becomes an incredibly uh, uh, scarce and, and uh, rare real estate. And fine, finite, right? And finite, yeah. There's only, I mean, the the craft beer sections in Port, in Portland and Oregon grocery stores has grown and grown and grown and grown and probably has reached its maximum. I mean, it's, it's, it's a big enough part of the store already. They're probably not going to go further. And it's contracting a little bit. Um, Fred Meyer's getting rid of all the space for uh, 22s, mm-hmm. which means there's fewer... Uh, fewer opportunities for breweries to get in there, yeah. um, that even if they just convert that to six-pack containers. That's right, know, because one little one little 22 line, one little 22, what do you call it? Uh, yeah, Q yeah. or something. <laughs> right? I don't even know. Hole. I don't, yeah, I don't know what the what the retailer term of art of it, art it, but you only have one bottle showing and then all the bottles are lined up behind, right? That's a tiny little bit of real estate that you can you can squeeze in there with a 22. But yeah, I think 22s are starting to, 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 to die out a little bit. With I think the, the skew number is actually decreasing now yeah uh, so i think we've we've hit a high water mark and are pulling back from that right so so you're talking about really challenging market in terms of uh, shelf space a really challenging market in terms of tap handles again for a long time you had this what you might call derived or drive demand which is that pubs and bars realize that people want craft beer so they start devoting more tap handles they maybe even add tap handles but at some point you've reached the, the amount the the maximum amount you can do that right um, and in Oregon, I think we've hit that. I mean, we yeah. talked about the saturation. It's like it's hard to imagine where it would, how you could expand that. Right. So it's so I guess the key point here is it's not just saturation in terms of the breweries themselves, but it's saturation in terms of the outlets. That's themselves. right. Like you, you used to not be able to get uh, a nice beer at uh, 
a chain restaurant or uh, a blazer game. But now all of those places have good beer tap handles. There's nowhere else to go. Yeah. That's that. Yeah. Uh, and so even even though demand itself might be growing, and it still is a little bit. Yeah, we were up. That was one, one nice thing. Uh, Oregon sales were up 3.5% uh, according to the uh, OLCC. Yeah, so it's still up, but I think we've reached, we're really slowing down in terms of that broad market access, right? right. So, so market access is now is now stabilizing or is, you know, flattening out, and all of these new breweries are coming online, and so there's intense competition. So it's difficult. It's a math problem, I see. <laughs> uh, and then the second is that competition is competition, and what happens with competition is price pressures start kicking in. And this is the point about economies of scale. Right. So being able to compete on price is really important, and it's really difficult as a small brewery to compete on price because you're just not as efficient as the bigger guys. Yeah. And break that down just so people... Well, I'm sure we've talked about it before, but, you know, talk about a brew house and why it's more efficient. Like, talk about your brother's experience at Summit and stuff like that. (laughs) You know, Uh, until you actually walk into a brew house and see this in action, it's kind of hard to understand. Well, okay, so the very first thing is just just, uh, uh, geometry, essentially. It's what, in in fact, in, in, in business and in managerial economics, we call the cube square rule. Ah, Which is, just think about the actual physical brew house, the tanks. Right, the 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 conditioning tanks, but also the the brew house itself. Uh, it takes um, less stainless steel per ounce. The bigger you get, and right. so the cube square rules that the volume of a container goes up cubically as the surface area of a container goes up in a squared fashion. Nice. Uh, of course it does. That's wonderful to know. Yeah. See, I was waiting for you to look at it. <laughs> and, so, and so it's just, uh, just in terms of the physical, the, the expense of the, the equipment itself, uh, it's, it's cheaper to have bigger equipment per ounce of beer. Uh, it's also cheaper to buy in bulk. It's often al- also cheaper to ship in bulk. Uh, it's often cheaper to distribute uh, in bigger quantities. So there's all kinds of ways. Oh, yeah, and then and then you, my brother's experience. So my brother uh, is no longer in the business, but um, he went to UC Davis, got his got his degree in brewing, uh, and worked for a succession of breweries. The first one was a little brewery. I don't know how big or small it is anymore, but it's, it was called Hangar Twenty Four and in Southern California. Uh, and, you know, it was very much a hands-on little place. Uh, they have this, their little flagship beer for a time at least was orange wheat, and they actually had oranges that they would dump into, <laughs> into, the, <laughs> into the kettle. Uh, and he has burns to prove that he was there at the top of the kettle dumping the brew, the oranges a little too fast, splashing a little too much. Uh, and then by the time he got to Summit Brewing, which is a big regional brewery in uh, St. Paul, Minnesota, uh, he was basically doing crosswords and uh, sitting by a computer screen, uh, pressing buttons to make the brewing happen. And so it took a, two or three guys to push the the amount of beer you could, uh, you know. Right. So 20. here you got yeah. So here you got two or three guys, a hangar twenty four, brewing like five barrels, right? <laughs> and then here you've got one guy in front of a computer brewing, you know, whatever. Yeah, hundred barrels. Hundred barrels. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so there's just all kinds of ways in which brewing. Uh, suffers from economies of scale. And uh, so uh, we'll talk about other things that matter in craft beer, but one of the things that matters is price. That's right. Like you'll never get away from that price pressure. And so that creates intense, intense competition. And then imagine that when you start slipping and you start getting small, you know, your, your, your sales go down, you know, the, 
that the, what you need is a higher price and what you have to do is offer a lower price and then you get stuck in this spiral, right? Yeah, Portland Brewing a few years ago decided to slash their prices and it worked for a couple of years. They actually had... Hand me another one of those IPAs, by the way. All right, man. I'm on the case. <laughs> We're, this, is, this is our wake, our wake for Bridgeport Brewing, so I'm going to do it. All right, right. I'm with you. I'm going to do it right. Here we go. You're not drinking alone, my friend. By the way, this isn't one of these big IPAs, right? This is No, 5.5%. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, it's uh, yeah, old timey. Uh, if if I weren't in your in your uh, dining room, I'd I'd spill a little in honor of Bridgeport and those that work there. Yeah, you better not do that. Sally wouldn't like it on your floor. Yeah, if it was my house, it wouldn't be a problem because my dog would lick it up. <laughs> All right. <coughs> yeah. Oh, Cooper, why aren't you here? <laughs> Uh, yeah, uh, Portland Brewing did that. They slashed their prices and uh, went for just bare minimum uh, profit margin. Right. And they grew quite substantially for a couple of years. But then um, they have been in free fall for right. the last two years and have fallen back down below there. And now they have, now, now they're considered like a, an economy brand and it's really hard to figure out where to go from there. So yeah. uh, that's exactly what you're talking about. Okay, so let's keep moving on. The other thing we've talked about previously in this episode is consolidation of uh, distributors. <laughs> Sorry. Well, I was trying to <laughs> trying to get audio there, and I actually got foam all over the, the, the mic, so the that's pop, good. The pop filter, yeah. Uh, that's fine. Uh, that's what Awake's all about, spilling beer everywhere. Yeah, that's right. Uh, so we talked about the consolidation. So just... So finding shelf space and tap handles is hard enough. Uh, and distri- distribution is consolidating as well. And distributors were sort of the, you know, they're the face of the beer to the to the retailers. And so it's getting harder and harder to find a distributor and uh, getting getting traction within the distributor. And as we talked about during the uh, news segment. There are fewer and fewer distributors, so they're carrying larger and larger portfolios. We have two main distributors here in town, and one of them, Columbia Brewing, or Columbia Distributing, carries, I don't know, a hundred different brands, because they include, that includes uh, foreign and uh, out-of-state brands. So they, I mean, imagine if you're, you know, you're trying to sell a thousand barrels, and and you, and Columbia picks you up, are they ever, when they walk into a pub, are they going to? Talk about your your IPA, which is the hundredth IPA on their list. Exactly, probably, probably not. Yeah. Uh, excuse me. So um, I'm trying to decide which way to go from here. Uh, I think I think let's talk just a little bit about having to having to uh, sort of chase the zeitgeist, ride the novelty curve. Lots of these terms we've used. Uh, one of the th- over a cold. Sorry. So. Yeah, one of the one of the characteristics of the of the craft beer market in Portland, uh, given that there's so many brewers and it's so saturated, is having to sort of create that that buzz, uh, uh, producing new and relevant beers that keep you sort of on the tips of the tongues of the beer cognoscenti. Did I say that right? Probably not. Uh, <laughs> we know what you mean. Yeah, uh, and, and actually, I don't know how to pronounce it. <laughs> I know it's one of those. It's one of those words you read all the time and don't right. think about. <laughs> uh, okay, <laughs> uh, so uh, it's a it's it's a difficult thing. Uh, uh, traditionally, in beer, you've created one beer and, and sold the heck out of it. Uh, but those dynamics in in beervana at least have 
really changed. Yeah. Uh, people don't want to keep drinking the same beer all the time. They keep wanting new experiences. And so you have to give those new experiences. Uh, and it becomes, therefore, really ephemeral. Uh, how much and how often you get that attention, that spotlight turned on you, uh, is difficult. And so I think, um, uh, well, I'm going to sort of dovetail into saying that a successful brewery, craft brewery, has to be many things all at once. Uh, you sort of take for granted you have to be a good business person. Well, no, actually, we can get into that. <laughs> you have to be a good business person. Um, you have to be a good brewer. Uh, actually, all three facets we should probably explore. So you have to be a good business person, you have to be a good brewer, and then you also have to be uh, a good at uh, selling your vision. Right. And so what I'm talking about right now is selling your vision, right. which means you have to have a way to do it. You have to be able to uh, uh, do it in a convincing way, um, and you have to be able to uh, dovetail your vision with the way the market is. Thoughts? I totally agree. I mean, I think this is where Bridgeport went sideways. Right. They lost their vision, and so they were selling flavors of beer, and beer is an interesting product. People have uh, a connection. They, of course, care about the flavor, but they also care about the brewery. They care about uh, the identity. You know, I mean, when we talk about Bridgeport, you and I immediately default to this kind of romantic experience we had <laughs> back in the day. And nobody had a romantic experience with Bridgeport over the last 10 years. Yeah. And so it didn't, yeah. it didn't create that stickiness of vision that carried people forward. So I, I, I totally agree. And when you look at that list of, of breweries that are really taking off right now, Freem, uh, 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 Breakside, uh, a couple of the other little guys, like you, you pointed out, Bowie was doing really well, Fort George is doing well. These are breweries that have a really solid vision. If you go down to a pub and you say to somebody, tell me about Freem beer. Tell me what that brewery is all about. They right. will tell you exactly what that brewery right. is about. They get it. Um, that, so vision is, I, I'm with you. Vision, yeah. vision and, is critical. And one of the breweries that's going completely nuts is Ecliptic, which is a great example because here's John Harris, one of the, one of the towering ancient figures of Oregon brewing, uh, finally has his own brewery, has his own vision, is both very clear of his own vision, but also tuned in to, to flavors and tastes, modern flavors and tastes, and he's married the two in a brilliant way. I got to give it up to that guy. I, <laughs> I know. I didn't. When I did my top ten list last year for the first time, I put Ecliptic on there as a kind of like they were they were on the bubble. And I thought, you know what, John Harris deserves the benefit of the doubt. I'm definitely putting Ecliptic on my my top ten list for the first year. But <clears throat> my guess is um, more more interesting, relevant breweries will come along and, and bump him off before long. And then sure. in 2018. He released some of the most interesting beers on the market. I mean, when he opened the brewery, he was really playing to his kind of soft spot of big yeah. hoppy beers and dark beers. Yeah. But now he does these amazing sours. He had the best brewed IPA I tasted. He's doing. He's he's leading the charge. And I was like, well, Ecliptic is in in my definitely in on uh, on 2019 yeah. because he just really he has his vision. So I think he, this uh, is actually a, this is a really good point to talk about the other two aspects, which is. Uh, number two, you have to be a really good brewer. And that sounds obvious, but that wasn't true in Portland 15 years ago. Well, you, and, and I think I, just on my top, uh, my top 10 list, there is a category of breweries, and it's large in Portland, where that's not the case, where the mm -hmm. beer is not good. And, and there's a lot of different ways to talk about not good. It could be recipes are ill-conceived. Yep. 
uh, the 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 uh, the consistency is not there. So that doesn't mean there's off flavors. It just right. means that the beer doesn't taste the same batch to batch. Right. And then of course there's off flavors. We don't actually have so many issues with off flavors anymore. But breweries that just make not very interesting beers, those are really common. Those yeah. are by far the most common breweries. Uh, so I think that this um, this is one area in which the sort of old model, and there are quite a few of these that have become quite successful, but the home brewer gone pro yeah. as becoming less and less of a thing. Yeah. Uh, and there's two reasons for that. One is that we've got a whole... Uh, what happens when you have 117 brewers, breweries in the metro area is that you're creating an incredible population of experienced commercial brewers. Yeah. Uh, and the successes that I think that we're seeing nowadays are those commercial brewers going off on their own who have the experience in a commercial brewery. And the home brewer turned pro, which we saw a lot early on, uh, and usually, I would say, characterized by inconsistent beers, sometimes all flavors and odd recipes, is um, really diminishing. Yeah. So, um, so Agreed. So part of being uh, in a market is uh, having to brew really good beer, and part of that, I would suggest, is being able to, to, to recognize trends and brew very good examples of modern beers, what people want to drink. That's right. So, for example, you know, pretty much everybody now needs to have some kind of hazy IPA. <laughs> Or, or uh, have have such a strong vision and such great execution sure. yeah. that you sure. you stand out as this you know kind of other example. I have one of my favorite breweries in Portland right now is Wayfinder. They yep. do lagers. Yeah. One of my favorite breweries is of course Upright, and they they do have one IPA, but it's a really weird Uprighty IPA, and you know right. they they have perfected what they're doing and they have a vision and. They're doing it. So yeah. you, you can do it that way, but you better damn well know how to make beer. And as I mentioned before, there's ways to dovetail your vision to modern tastes. So, right. That's so right. you can create something that has a little bit more, you know, citrus flavor or hop forward, you know, in, 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 in a beer that's not a high, hazy IPA. Right. Okay. And then the last thing I think the, the least appreciated part of this is being a good business person. And you know what? As you were leading up to that, mm -hmm. one person kept coming up in my mind that we should, I'm, 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 I'm <laughs> saying this right now, our, I, I, in the very near future, we need to have this guy on here to talk about this very aspect because he's a great brewer, mm -hmm. uh, and but he's tired of us always talking about <laughs> in the in the beer industry, always just talking about uh, beer and beer quality because yeah. he's really focused on the business end, and that's Van Havig at uh, Gigantic. We yeah. should have him on here to talk about this because he has Let's. very strong and interesting opinions about running a business, which is a big deal. Go ahead with that. Yeah, so what I was going to say is that 10, 15, 20 years ago, uh, you could probably be a not particularly uh, shrewd business person and do just fine because the demand was increasing and people wanted craft beer and you didn't need to do much. Yeah. Uh, but as we've talked about, there's lots of challenges, market challenges, and you need to be incredibly shrewd business person to think about how you're going to uh, overcome those challenges and, and your particular business model and where it fits in an incredibly saturated market. Yeah. Making decisions like you said, do I go to a bulk... Uh, malt thing. I'm going to have to invest money. Should I go into debt to do that? Like, there's a lot of, there's a million of these small decisions. Am I going to do self distribution, which has all these ramifications, or am I going to do other distribution? Yeah. Do I build out excess capacity when I build a brewery? Do I keep it small? That's right. Do I build uh, in a nice central location and pay through the nose for the space, or do I go into a more remote place and try to find, you know, customers where they're not very 
prevalent. Like yeah, all do these I, do things. I focus on packaging and offsite sales, or do I create a tap room, or do I do a brew pub model? Yeah. Uh, one thing we should probably stop and just say that for the most part, I think the brew pub model, brew pub model is still a fairly good model, even in the saturated uh, uh, marketplace. But I don't think it's any more this kind of can't miss proposition. Yeah, that's right. I don't know if you're going to go here next. Are you done with those three things? Yeah, you, you, you lead the way now. Well, I, I'm, I'm just throwing the ball right back to you because when we were talking about this, um, you gave an analogy that I thought was really... Uh, wait, you made this analogy years ago, and I, I, I don't know if I actually actively disputed you. You then, were too polite on there. But um, in my head, I thought, no, that's not right. But now I think you're exactly right. So why don't you uh, flesh out that analogy and we'll talk about that. Yeah, so I started talking about beer as being more like uh, the restaurant business uh, in the sense that uh, restaurants are a notoriously tough business to keep. Uh, the longevity in restaurant business is very hard. Yeah. Uh, and for these reasons, you need to stay fresh, you need to stay relevant. Uh, the stuff that worked 10 years ago doesn't necessarily work now. Uh, and I think that um, just like in beer, that's more and more true in the 21st century than it was in the 20th century, that uh, there's more and more competition. Um, so you need new flavors, new, new relevancy, uh, and it's just hard to sustain over time. Yeah. I think that's exactly right. I interviewed uh, Greg Higgins yesterday. Greg Higgins is a restaurateur here in Portland who founded a, uh, a restaurant called Higgins. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was for a decade probably the defining brewery in in Portland. And restaurant, right? Restaurant. I'm sorry. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. uh, the defining restaurant in Portland that that um, brought Portland into this modern era of cooking. Yeah, uh, and kind took of pioneered it. the farm to table, the yeah. local ingredients. Yeah, and um, I was interviewing him because he was also just as an aside. I'll mention this: uh, a giant fan of beer. And had uh, when he debuted that brewery or that restaurant uh, had a, a wine list and a beer list, and he had a beer sommelier, and he yep. was he took it very seriously. And that that, and that he paired, yeah, he paired uh, fine dining. This is a, a high end, you know, fine dining restaurant. Yeah, white tablecloth, if you like. There you are. Uh, <laughs> uh, restaurant with uh, with local craft beer, but for fifteen years, mm-hmm. it has not been the. Yeah. Uh, center. And I think it's probably, I mean, you know, it's, it's one of those, like, that's what happens after a certain point. Uh, you're no longer the bell of the ball and there's no way to get to be the bell of the ball again. It's so hard to get back into the center of that zeitgeist. Cause even if you're doing exactly the same thing as the young, you know, hipster down the road, um, you carry this baggage of, of all your history with you. And so you never get, you never get the fresh look again. Yeah. And that's happening in beer. We're seeing that again and again and again. I mean, I think, you and I both love Deschutes Brewery. Uh, we continually are impressed by the beer that they're releasing yep. as some of the best in the state and the country. And yet, uh, because they're 20, 31 years old, um, <laughs> they are they carry that whole baggage around. And yep. their flagships are old and dated and their pub beers from the 1980s, uh, which is when they're from. And, um, you know, it's just... It's just challenging. Like they're always going to be this older brewery now. They're yeah. never going to get a fresh look from anybody. Yeah. So as I was, so re- I'm with you. Your restaurant thing totally works. Yeah, I think it's more and more true. And by the way, I don't think that there's actually that much. Uh, you know, these days, uh, oh, I'll say two points at one because I can do it right now. Uh, I was going to talk about. I talked about the saturation of the talent. So you now have a very talented 
a huge talent pool of brewers in, in the Portland area. So you've got mm. that. You also have a pretty saturated market in terms of, uh, of brewing equipment. And so one of the things, you know, I don't think it's that much more expensive to build out a brewery than it is a commercial kitchen, which is pretty expensive too. That's right. Uh, so, you know, if you're thinking of analogies that way, um, uh, there's a lot of used brewing equipment. You can get a brewery started for probably half a million dollars, and that's probably about what a real a good commercial kitchen would cost you as well. So, um, so there's a lot of ways I think in which I think brewing is becoming more and more like like restaurants. Yeah, and with those profit margins becoming tighter and tighter, that half million dollars looks a little riskier and a little riskier. And uh, yep, yeah, yep, yep, yep. Uh, okay, so I was going to just. Uh, talk about one other thing. I was ruminating on sort of beer and why beer is different. And one of the things, and we've talked about this before we were talking on the podcast, but uh, I, I happened to be uh, eating a Ben & Jerry's, some Ben & Jerry's ice cream. And I thought about the ice cream market and why is ice cream different than beer? Because ice cream is one of these things where it went underwent the same kind of sort of craft uh, rent, uh, uh, renewal, I suppose. And this was, you know, probably back right in the eighties, some, some similar time, mm-hmm. Ben and Jerry's, I don't know exactly when they date too, but yeah, probably... I mean, food, food went through the same transition period yeah. in the 1980s when we went away from mass market Velveeta cheese to artisanal cheese. And right. all, all, all so we've talked about this. So I was thinking yeah. about, about ice cream and I was like, why isn't ice cream like beer? Uh, because you sort of have the same same kind of thing. You could start a little ice creamery pretty easily, and we do have local ice creameries, but you know these big sort of bigger brands, the kind of stuff that you see in the supermarkets, haven't changed that much over the years, haven't been pushed out. There are a lot of little new guys that come and go sometimes, but some of these big brands haven't been pushed out. So I'm wondering what's different. What do you think? Yeah, well, I'll say what I said earlier, which you fairly quickly refuted, but, um, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> uh, I'll, I'll still say it. My, you know, my whole shtick is, uh, beer is culture. I feel like beer predates civilization, uh, and has this connection. Humans have this connection, uh, to it because it connects them in a social way. Uh, and so, um, the, it, uh, as a product, it's a little bit like cuisine in that it can be made in a million different ways. And so process and uh, ingredients really matter. And they, you know, Belgian beer looks as much different from German beer as Belgian food looks from German food. Right. Whereas German wines and, and French wines, I don't know how many Belgian wines there are, um, don't look that different comparatively. Yeah. But even more than that, the experience we have of drinking beer, when uh, which we just talked about our experiences at Bridgeport and the reason that we find this, this business closure, you know, this Texas owned business closing, right. the reason it pains us so it much emotionally yeah. Yeah, is because we spent time <clears throat> important parts of our lives, uh, connecting over pints of this beer. And so that's different than ice cream. Yeah. So that's what I said. Although yeah, I said it better I, this time. I got to, I, I, that was a little, <laughs> maybe more convincing. Yeah. And I didn't mean to refute that. I actually think there's a lot to that. The other, the other part I just add to it is that, you know, beer is a much more integral part of our life. You know, we, we order at restaurants, we go out to bars, you know, it's not happening that much with ice cream. We don't care that much. It's a much more central part. Uh, and uh, I think it's also just a frequency too. You know, we, we have beer frequently. And so that, that leads us to desire more, more, uh, more variety. And also newer experiences in, in that social context, um, there's a, uh, uh, ice cream will, will, will give you this aesthetic high. It won't give you an actual high. Beer, Sugar however, rush. <laughs> that's right. Beer, beer does something to your brain chemistry and yeah. that can't 
probably be dismissed. It can't be nothing, right? Yeah, right. I mean, that's got to that's got to be a big part of sort of your your emotional attachment to certain to certain beers, for better or for worse, right? That's right. Uh, Okay, so that's I. Before we conclude, we should acknowledge a few more headwinds, like for example. Uh, the Portland economy, the Oregon economy is bro- booming. Real estate prices are going up and up and up. The state legislature just raised the minimum wage substantially. Raised the minimum wage substantially. So if you're running a, a brew pub, I've always lamented the, the expense of a burger in Oregon. A lot of that has to do with the fact that the minimum wage is high and there's no tip discount. You can't uh, pay uh, uh, restaurant workers less because they receive tips. That's right. Uh, so there's a lot of cost pressures. Um, there might also be some, you know, we now have legalized cannabis in Oregon, so there might be some pressure, downward pressure and demand there. Yep. Uh, Especially uh, now that you can brew cannabis. <laughs> yeah, you can turn you can turn brewer's yeast into cannabis. That's great. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, you talked before about just people are drinking less overall, so alcohol yeah. is alcohol consumption is going down. Yeah, the, the, the younger people are drinking less than we did, and probably good for them, but... Yeah. Um, yeah, I bet your I bet your son's I won't say his name, uh, <laughs> little Emerson, uh, has, has yeah. I bet he's drunk less alcohol uh, through his age than you did through his age. Uh, yeah, back in the day in Wisconsin. That's so. true. But I will say that the back in the day in Wisconsin, the drinking age was eighteen and then nineteen when I was young, and I lived in a college town, Madison, where there were so many college bars that all we had to do on a Friday or Saturday night was just. They all had bouncers, but, you know, there's so many people coming and going. So you usually hit a couple before a bouncer wouldn't stop you. Well, when I was your son's age, I was living two and a half of the worst years of my life in Utah, and I was drinking a ton. <laughs> so I'm just saying, it happens. And, and these kids uh, today, for, for a variety of reasons, don't drink as much, and that's good. That's yeah, a, that's yeah a, for those of you underage who are listening to this pod, <laughs> we oh, do not condone... All, all zero of we you. We do not condone underage consumption yeah, of alcohol. Be... Good. Yeah. Uh, and even okay. young people, it's good to. But I want to leave. I want to leave this. I want to leave our pod on a on a on a, on a up note, which is to recognize the fact that there's still a ton of new breweries who have opened, are opening, and are scheduled to open in Portland. Tariffs. Oh, tariffs. Go ahead on tariffs. Well, I mean, there's other there's other <laughs> there's other pressures. Tariffs. The, the rising cost of steel and aluminum. I got I got a whole bunch here. Okay, keep going then. I'm sorry uh, to step on your step on your research, man. You gotta you gotta get your money through. No, that's it. That's it. that was actually the last one. But by God, gotta get terrorists Terrace. in there. Yeah, terrorists. Come on. And if Terrace. we were English, we'd be talking about Brexit. But that's a whole other thing. Yeah. Apparently, the latest thing is that the pallets aren't, aren't right for Europe. So if they if they have a no deal Brexit, then they can't ship nothing. Oh, really? Like the physical, the pallets? Like the pallets themselves are the wrong size. P-A-L-E-T. Yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah. Okay. Of Uh, course. (laughs) That's a... If you want to learn more, tune into our other pod (laughs) today (laughs) in Brexit. Imperial sizing. Yeah. Yeah. As the holder of a British passport, goddammit, I hate this Brexit. Well, Ah. I know. It may may turn out all right in the end, but okay. Uh, So, uh, some of the... Happy note. Some of the brewery openings... um, uh, uh, you just mentioned the one near me, Ruse. Ruse. I was about yeah. to say rumination. Like it's not rumination, but there's a lot of shuns in in brewing in Portland. It's true. A bad, tra- <laughs> a bad naming trend, but uh, yeah. Uh, so there are. You and I should go to Ruse. It's a great 
place to hang, and it's in a weird middle of nowhere place that I love. It's actually quite near my house. Yeah, and, and it's, I'm, it's, I'm a little bit um, offended that you didn't invite me when you went. Uh, but let's move on. Uh, so Ruse is one. Uh, there's been a bunch of uh, new ones. Level is a fairly new one. Uh-huh. You tell me new ones. Uh, uh, well, West Coast Grocery Company. West Coast Grocery Company near uh, you is which had a little. Uh, sexual harassment issue, which was really ugly, but um, they were making great beer, so they're they're new and interesting. Um, in the city of Portland, there's a brewery that opened a, a tasting room here that that I love called Little Beast, which right. you and I have been to. Yep, they're actually not quite brand new, but um, but a nice brewery, and they're amazing because they specialize in uh, wild yeast. Yeah, yeah. So and and very well done, like super balanced, vinous. Um, Restrained acidity, all the stuff I love. Yeah, so, so there's a lot of fruit. There's, lot of ways fruit. To, there's ways to find a niche, yeah. Yeah, totally. Um, there's a, a brewery called Von Ebert, right. uh, which is very ambitious, and I think we're going to see much more coming out of them. They're, they're headed by Sean Burke, a brewer who is a uh, Doyman's from Germany trained guy who is exceptional at lagers, which have been great lagers, but oh. they've also started a cool ship program so yeah. that's going to be interesting and i have to say by the way just i didn't think about this we hadn't plot planned this but they have uh they have this kind of crazy hazy hellas that i just adore i can't remember Bunny yeah oh nice oh it's so good <laughs> it's like a kellerman yeah it's really really good yeah <laughs> sean does the best loggers in the state which is saying something uh, i don't know uh, so i'm sorry alan taylor he, thank god he doesn't listen to this he does great loggers so we actually have a yeah, lot of people making, yeah we have a lot of people making good loggers because wayfinder does great loggers and uh, uh, yeah we should do a whole pod on that let's just Let's, we're we're almost an hour and a half in. Let's talk about what. Let's keep going. Loggers. This is what happens when you drink too much before IPA. Okay, we should yeah. probably wrap this up. Yeah. Anyway, uh, there's a lot of nice. There's breweries. a lot of new people. There's a lot of new breweries planned. It's kind of amazing. So Wayfinder open only opened last year. And when I did my poll of uh, people before I put out my list, I do a poll of people who'd go to a lot of breweries and have a lot of big opinions. And Wayfinder was on every single person's list on that top. 20. Uh, 10, and I think it was uh, just with maybe like three or four other, maybe two or three other breweries. And they opened, they don't, didn't even start brewing until 2017. So, no, 2018. No, 2017. I don't know. Anyway, very recently. Yeah, 2017. Yeah. And, all- uh, and they're already now considered this like classic Portland best brewer that everybody agrees, and they opened that recently. So Okay, well, I think this is a perfect way to end, because that's a perfect example of uh, a brewery that entered in the saturated market but had exceptional business people who had a very clear vision right who had uh, who brought on exceptional brewers um, uh, and who sort of uh, uh, captured you know almost created a bit of their own zeitgeist they're gonna say capture the zeitgeist but they had a very clear idea of what they were going to do how they would fit in a saturated market something they could offer that other people didn't they did see that lager was becoming popular, and, and in a way, even though they're very traditional lagers, they are right right smack dab in the center of where the, the market is now. So that's true. Yeah, I love this new lager trend. Okay, well, we better wrap it up because this may be the longest pod we've ever yeah, done. Yeah, well, you know, you come back after three months, you gotta, <laughs> yeah, you gotta go, go long. You gotta get your money's worth. <laughs> you prorate this out, it's like only 10 minutes for all uh, the other ones we missed. The good news for those of you out there is that we don't have a mailbag in Sherpa, but I'm gonna, I'm gonna actually throw you a curveball because you came up uh, recently with your um, Satori Award. I did. Yeah. So why don't you tell us about that? Well, uh, 
the Satori Award used to be, when I first started it, it's my best beer that was released in the previous year in Oregon. Yeah. And um, I used to have kind of, I used to be able to fool myself and think that I was actually keeping up on all the, the new beers that were being released. Yeah. And that's no longer the case. 200, so, 281 breweries in Oregon. Yeah, and they're all releasing <laughs> like, yeah. you know, 20 to 30 new brewer, beers a year. So there's no way to keep up. But um, of the beers that I had, uh, I looked at which ones I, I thought were the best. And I think fewer people care about that than, than I would like. But <laughs> I find it a useful exercise because it allows me to kind of see the trends and see where the market's going and see what I was finding interesting. And so... The last couple of years, uh, you know, a fair number of hazies have come onto my list. Yep. Uh, a fair number of barrel-aged uh, wild beers have been on my list. Mm-hmm. But this year, a beer came on, came into my consciousness uh, that knocked my socks off because it's um, it's an old style, but it was updated in a way that I found totally charming. Um, it was a pale ale. Mm-hmm. But it was made like a modern, juicy American beer. Right. This is a style that has not really been updated too much. Breweries went from IPA to session IPAs uh, right. and left pails alone. Yeah. But Level made this beer, uh, which was had the classic sessionability of a, of a pale ale, had a little bit more uh, malt character than a session IPA does. Mm-hmm. Very, I could drink, uh, you know, three pints of that without even thinking about it, and it would be great from, from first first drink to last drink, just wonderful. But it had all the juiciness I like. I, You and I both like the modern styles. Yep. Like we're, our, our palates are evolving right along with the market. <laughs> and it was um, it was one of the new breweries you talked about called Level. And these are old industry veterans. Very often new breweries come from old, older people, people, experienced people. And um, uh, Jason Barbie actually was at Ex Novo. And I think he was the guy who was behind all those English beers, the mild oh. and that, uh, oh. that, uh, that bitter. Yeah. Stiff, that, stiff, upper, <laughs> stiff upper lip. Stiff upper lip ESP. Oh, so, I haven't seen that in ages. I know. Oh. So he, he's, he's really brewing beers like we like. So he made this pale, or they made this pale. I don't know who made it. Um, I don't know what the, who the brewer was, but uh, called Cool Kids Like Pale Ale. Right. And I, I've talked to many brewers who still love pale ales. In fact, I was talking to Alex Ganum a while ago, and he said, you know what, I just like a really good pale ale. No, you can't sell them anymore, but I love a good pale ale, an American pale ale. Mm-hmm. And so this was an American pale ale, and I thought, what is more like cutting edge than naming a pale ale my beer of the year? So I went for that. Level, uh, cool kids drink pale ale. All right. That was it. And it's... Um, it's not a beer they brew routinely, but I have seen it come and go, so I hope they continue to do it. And I think it's just in a in a portfolio of the kind of the trends that they're pursuing and the kind of way they're thinking about pale ale because they they are champions of pale ale. So, yeah. so those of you who live in Portland, or if you're planning a visit to Portland, if you're not planning a visit to Portland, you should, uh, and you should be in touch. We can set you right. <laughs> uh, there you go. Good okay, job, man. Well, uh, let's wrap this. Yeah, let's let's wrap this up. Uh, so, thanks very much for listening to this podcast. Uh, we, of course, would like to. I uh, encourage you to, to subscribe to us and to rate us, uh, subscribe to us on whatever platform you listen, but of course, iTunes. Uh, yeah, subscribe well. because you don't want to miss an episode. Yeah, because you just don't know when they're coming. <laughs> that's right. If you don't subscribe, how will you know? <laughs> it's, it's, not like, it's not like we're on a schedule. That's or right. It's certainly not reliable. <laughs> <laughs> All right, uh, that helps other but listeners we're hoping, find us. We're it hoping we're us, back on track, right? Yeah, it helps like us ho- for some reason. By the way, we, we get absolutely nothing for this. So if you're complaining about audio quality, uh, quality of the hosts, and the quality do. of the content, 
uh, people remember do. that we're doing this entirely for fun. That's right. <laughs> we got nothing. There was okay. a short there was a short period when Guinness actually sponsored us, but those were gone. Hey, we're available. This space <laughs> available, by the way. <laughs> That's an extremely poor platform form onto which to, to launch a uh, an appeal. But I'm with you. Yeah, we'd uh, be we'd be really good shows your ad for here. your brand. That's right. Uh, we don't mind. Uh, uh, prostituting ourselves. Heineken. Oh, yeah. wonderful, tasty beer since 1849. I don't know when it's from, but yeah. yeah. Uh, uh, see, see how I did that? Uh, yeah, Miller Extra Light. Uh, all the taste and fewer calories. And corn syrup, which is tasty. <laughs> and corn syrup, which is a traditional adjunct. Okay, that's right. All right. Uh, that's for you beer nerds. Uh, we don't have any feedback because we don't pod very much, but if you'd like to send us some feedback, please email jeff at jeff at beervanablog.com or visit the Beervana blog Facebook page. We'd love to hear from you, so please send us questions or comments. Jeff blogs at the Beervana blog and tweets at at Beervana. And Patrick blogs nowhere, but he tweets at at Beeronomics. That's correct. I do actually too have I got, I got, I got two deep into that pages. sentence before I knew what I was saying. I two blog pages, but uh, okay. Uh, as you might be able to tell, we're deep into our second IPA, so yeah. we're gonna cheers. Getting a little loose. Yeah. All right. All right. Cheers, cheers Patrick. Jeff.